you can tell a story uh, with a photo. Burn bright right here, a picture. It's worth a lot. And that's why, like, I love social media, and I, I'm a biggest fan of all the stuff, Twitter, Facebook, all that. I love Instagram. Any Instagram fans? I just love it because you can make comments about a photo, and if you look at the picture, most of the time it tells its own story. Uh, but if you use Instagram, there are other apps that you should download to help you edit it. Uh, how many use Snapseed? Any Snapseed people? Free and glorious is me and my son. Hello. You know, Snapseed, it's totally free. You can take your regular photo and you can brighten it. You can crop it. You can tilt it. You can make it better than the original. And then you can post it. But we have these beautiful tools that help us to, to tell a story. Now, we have been looking at the story of, of Mark in his gospel, and he didn't have all the tools we have. I mean, we've got apps, we've got pictures, we've got video. We have these things called books. You can open it up, and it's a tree that they shave, right? And then you open it up, there's words on it. We have lots of ways to tell a story. But in the first century, they didn't have photos, they didn't have video, so you used language, to communicate the picture you're trying to paint to tell the story that you want your hearers to know. So the Bible writers are storytellers. Now, tonight we're going to look at the, the crucifixion of Jesus. And the reason I say this whole story thing is the story of Jesus on the cross is so common, and you already have a picture in your head about what it's about, that sometimes we forget Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all tell the same story. But if you read all four, they have different nuances because every artist, every photographer, every author, you use your words carefully. You put things in, you take things out to craft what you want your hearer, your reader to get. So tonight we want to look only at Mark and to see what does Mark put in and what does Mark leave out. And in that, what is Mark, by the Spirit of God, trying to get us to remember when it comes to probably the most famous scene for us Christians, thinking about Jesus on the cross. So we're going to look at it kind of line by line and see what Mark has for us. So Mark 15, we'll start where we were, were last week, verse 12. Uh, Matt already covered these, but the picture is, it starts here. So Matthew 15, I'm sorry, Mark 15, verse 12. What shall I do then with one you call the king of the Jews? This is Jesus on trial. Pilate asked them, crucify him, they shouted. Why? What crime has he committed, asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. Okay, so I'm just going to pick up a couple of words that are graphic that we don't maybe understand because... It's not often that we would use the term flogged. So first picture we want to see tonight is that Jesus is flogged. What, what does that, what was that all about? Okay, I'm going to say a word and you tell me what the word is all about. Just kind of get it. Uh, I say the word drumstick. And t so drumstick. What you, chicken. Okay, some of you didn't have dinner before coming here. Okay. So what about the obvious? Like he hits the drums with a drumstick. Or it could be a waffle cone, vanilla ice cream, caramel in the middle, chocolate on the top, and we give it away for free. If you come to church, you can get on the way out, you can get, it's called, the ice cream is called a drumstick. One word 
And you could have greasy chicken. You could have ice cream. You could have musical instrument. My point is a word paints a picture. So I say the word flogged. And what does that mean? Because we're 2,000 years removed. I'm going to put a quote from one of the uh, biblical scholars, David Garland, about what it means to be flogged. It says, prisoners were bound to a pillar or post and given strokes uh, with a flagellum. And this lash was different than a simple whip. It consisted of leather thongs plated with pieces of bone, lead, or bronze, and it was fittingly called a scorpion. So uh, we'll read the rest, but let's just think about this. So Jesus is flogged. Mark does not have to describe it because they're living in Rome, and in Rome they flog people as a form of punishment. So it's multiple leather whips, sharp objects at the end. It's like a scorpion. They throw it at you, and it's meant to destroy you. So let's continue. There's no prescribed number of lashes. Sometimes the scourging itself was fatal. The balls are the tips at the end. Sometimes having hooks would cause deep wounds as the flesh was literally ripped into bloody ribbons. Now that's way bigger than oh, Jesus was flogged and then moved right along. Mark just says the word. The word should trigger for us because we are living in Rome. He writes it to people in Rome. Now we understand, wow, Jesus is mutilated. And so that's the first picture that we see. Now in the suffering of Jesus on the cross, what I want us to get a hint at, because Mark, when he writes about Jesus on the cross, doesn't quote chapters and verses, but what I want us to know is that behind the scenes, he's using language that's all over the Bible that describes what's going to happen to God's messenger. Because Jesus' beating, Jesus' crucifixion, isn't meaningless. It isn't happenstance. It didn't just happen to a common criminal. What happened to Jesus, according to Mark, is what was going to happen to God's deliverer, God's Savior, uh, called the Jewish Messiah. God's messenger was going to come. And uh, let's, just, let's just do this. Hold your place here. Go to the left and go to Psalms. Go to Psalms 22. Well, hold your place. Uh, I'm going to read a passage from Psalms 22. Because remember, authors, photographers, artists paint pictures. The Psalms are poems. They're lyrics. They are pictures. And in some of the Psalms, not all, some, there are these pictures of what's going to happen to God's messenger. So Psalm 22 is just one of them. And then we're going to see it back in Mark 15. Psalm 22 and verse 6, we'll pick it up. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by everyone, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. And then jump down uh, to verse 16. I'm sorry, verse 14. It says, I'm poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax. It's melted within me. My mouth is dry, dried up like potsherd, and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircles me. They pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them. 
and cast lots for my garment. But you, Lord, do not be far from me. You're my strength. Come quickly to help me. Now, some of this may sound vague, like what does this have to do? If you, later on tonight, this week, if you look at Psalm 22, and for time we won't do it, write it down. Psalm 69. Psalm 69, write it down. Write it down. Uh, Isaiah 53. There are certain passages that are just latent with this language, graphic pictures. And what Mark and the other gospel writers do, it's subtle. They don't quote chapter and verse, but they use language that matches Psalm 22, Psalm 69, Isaiah 53, to show us the picture of what's going to happen to this person, mysterious person in the Hebrew scriptures is exactly happening to Jesus. So, so let's just jump back to, to Mark 15. Now that we see that layer, he's got, a, he's got a dry mouth, the psalmist says. And he's thirsty. And, and there are villains encircled all around him. And they're casting lots for his clothes. His bones are exposed. His hand and feet are tied. He's pierced. All of these, these pictures we're going to see in subtle ways in the crucifixion of Jesus. So verse 16. So the soldiers, after Jesus is, is flogged, the soldiers led Jesus away into the palace, that's the uh, praetorium, and called together a whole company of soldiers. And that's about 600 people. So the first thing that we saw uh, already is that Jesus uh, is flogged. He's beaten. He's mutilated. The second thing that we're going to see is when they bring him out is Jesus is mocked. Not only is he physically beaten, but he's mocked. Verse 17, they put a purple robe on him. Purple is an expensive color. It's a dye, and it was used by royal leaders. So Caesar would wear purple. People of importance would wear purple. Uh, if you were rich, you would want to buy purple. And so, so they put a purple robe on him, then they twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on him. Who wears a crown? Caesar. Who wears a crown? In the games, the Olympics, the victor, the champion. So victorious, important people wear purple, wear a crown. Jesus, after having been flogged, look at the picture. His back is destroyed. He is ripped to shreds. His, his muscles, if you ever had an open wound, think about a few hours after the fact, how everything swells. And Jesus, imagine his facial expressions. After suffering so severely, it's hot. When you sweat, it would go into your open wounds. He's, they didn't clean him up, right? So he's bloody. He's dirty. And, and, and the, notice the contrast. Purple robe. He's a king. Crown on his head. He's a king. So they're mocking him. Uh, verse 18. They begin to call out to him, Hail, king of the Jews! This is a, a twist on the phrase, Hail Caesar, victor emperor, is what the soldiers would, would say to Caesar. Hail Caesar, victor emperor. Hail king of the Jews. The Romans looked down on the Jewish people as the defeated people. And so Jesus is their leader. Look at what Rome can do to, to Jewish best. If this is your king, this is what we'll do. So again, we're so far removed, he's painting a picture with words. Again and again, verse 19, they struck him on the head with a staff. They spit on him. Have you ever been spit on? I mean, like you're degrading him. Crown, purple. He's beaten. He's bruised. They hit him again and again. And when they had mocked him, verse 20, they took off the purple robe, put on his own clothes, and they led him out to crucify him. 
So the first scene, he's used these words. He's flogged. He's beaten. Now he's mocked. So far, Mark is just giving us the facts as they happen. But then we see uh, that Jesus is crucified. So verse uh, 21, a certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way in from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull. It's a mountain that if you looked at it from a distance, it, it had the kind of look of, uh, of someone's face or a skull. And so, so I want us to see this. Jesus is going to be crucified. And, and crucifixion, he says, crucified, crucified. Three times already is the word crucify him, crucify him. And then they crucified him. We don't understand it because that's not our form of torture. We, torture. we, we would say someone's sentenced to the death penalty, lethal injection, uh, life in prison, solitary confinement, the electric chair, right? Or phrases in war like waterboarding. Those are phrases we understand. We don't get crucifixion, but it was a common form of torture in the first century, and Rome used it all the time. They would use it on men and women, young and old, rich and poor, and it was a way not only to, to torture you, but to physically display who's in charge. So they would put you up on a hill. They're on Golgotha. They're on the side of a hill, on a mountain, and the vertical poles are there because they crucify people all the time. They bring in people from the war, the generals from the foreign uh, countries that they now dominate, and they'll crucify them. The common criminal, they'll crucify him. People who are in the insurrection, like Barabbas, that they released, they would crucify him. So the vertical poles stand there. Every time you go by this place, you know it's a place of torture. But you're required to carry the cross beam, the vertical beam. So it's a total humiliation. You are supposed to, after being flogged, your open wounds, you're supposed to carry the piece of wood that they're about to tie you to to slowly die. This is total, utter humiliation. So these key words, flogged, they're mocking him, crucified. Mark is trying to paint the picture of what Jesus, he suffers like a common criminal. And so Jesus, we know, is so weak from the beatings from probably not sleeping. Imagine, he's on trial overnight. He's beaten at night by the Jewish leaders. He's beaten again and flogged by the Roman leaders. And then he's beaten once again as they put the robe on him. He's beaten, beaten, beaten. And now exhausted, Jesus uh, is not able to carry it. So they get this guy, Simon, and, and he brings them up to the hill. Uh, when, when they get you up, the, the goal of crucifixion is a slow, slow death. So, most of the time, they would either tie you on this vertical pole to the, uh, I'm sorry, on the horizontal pole to the vertical pole and lift you up and there'll be a little piece of wood on, on the beam there so that on occasion you could kind of lean on it a little bit because for the most part you're hanging and by your arms you're slowly uh, not able to breathe. Uh, imagine holding on to a rope or something and trying to carry your own body weight. And so you would slip a bit as you get tired and so you'd have to push yourself up. So there's a little piece of wood maybe here where you could just get up for a little bit and grab some air, and then you slump down. You could be up there for days. Have you been to the Middle East? Is it warm in the middle of the day? Yes, and so Jesus is up there for hours, and the heat of the sun is baking you. You have open wounds, and the goal is that everyone would know Criminal, 
Rome is in charge, and this is what we do to people who are against us. And so this is a very graphic picture. Jesus is crucified. Now, what do they do? What does Simon tell us? Now, I'm giving us the details simply because we don't, we don't live in this culture, but as they're reading this, the church is remembering how Jesus suffered. Uh, verse uh, 23, they offered him wine mixed with myrrh. It, it became a bit of a narcotic. You put myrrh in wine and it will dull the pain. So are they being nice to him? No, but he did not take it. What they're trying to do most likely is extend the torture. So what you do is, is you dull the pain, give him wine mixed with myrrh a little bit so he'll last longer and suffer more violently. Um, and then they crucified him. And dividing up his clothes, they cast lots to see what each would get. So you know Psalm 22 there? These hints. There's these villains around me. I'm, I'm tied. Now, for Jesus, we know from the other gospel writers that they put nails in him. Why would they put nails in you? Because Rome usually would hang you up to die and then walk away. The, the soldiers wouldn't even stay. And so if they really wanted to make sure no one else could pull you down, they would nail you to the wood. And so because Jesus is a popular leader, they're afraid that his disciples, once they move away, they're going to pull him down. So the guards stay until his death because they want to make sure that no one pulls him down. And so Jesus is crucified. Now, what do we know? It was nine in the morning, verse 25 says, when they crucified him. And the written notice of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. So it's, it's a mockery to make you carry the wood. It's a mockery for them to take your clothes and divide it. As you're dying, they're playing a game to see who gets your clothes. They're totally mocking you. And the ultimate mock is the sign that they put over Jesus' head. This is the king of the Jews, a.k.a. Rome's in charge, Caesar is king, and if you claim to be a king, this is what happens to you. And so it's not only mocking to Jesus, but it's mocking to the Jews as well because they're saying, this is your king. We are in charge. Remember who this is. This is Jesus, the savior of the world. God's come among us. And what does he endure? He endures the utter beating. They flogged him. They mocked him and made fun of him. And then they cause him to die a slow and painful death. And they hang the sign over his head. But ironically, as Mark is telling us all this, is Jesus a king? Yes. What we're supposed to get when we paint this picture is these guys don't get it. What they're doing is they're bowing down and mocking to worship him. But he actually is the king. They're putting a crown on his head. But they don't realize he really is a king. Purple on him. He is a real king. A sign over his head. He is a real king. And so there are two things going on here. There's the brutal death of Jesus. But somehow in it, God's plan is being fulfilled. Now, hold your place here. Just go to the beginning of Mark. Uh, Mark 1, 1. I want us just to read it again. We've been so far removed from chapter 1. I think about 85 people had babies since we started in this church. Like, no lie. There have been so many kids born since, since, we, since we started this. Um, Mark 1.1, 1, 1, the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah, the prophet. So, so Mark from verse 1 of chapter 1 wants us to know this is the beginning of good news about Jesus, the Messiah, God's king, God's deliverer, sent to rescue people, the Son of God. 
And what I want us to see is as, as Mark is tying everything together, he is showing by the hints in Psalm 22, Psalm 69, Isaiah 53. Now in the account of the life of Jesus as he's on the cross, that what God had put in place, he is pulling together. And, and two streams are happening. Jesus, on one hand, is being killed like a common criminal. But we know, because we're reading his gospel, we know the end of the story that Jesus is going to get the last word because everything they do against this king, they don't realize he is who they claim that he is, an actual king. So let's, um, let's just finish this, this other. What does Mark really get hot about? So far, if you look at the words, they've been almost kind of cold, like guys. Hey, what'd you do this weekend? Stuff, you know, hung out. What'd you do at work today? I worked. What'd you do for lunch? I ate. Like, you know, a few words. He's been really short. And he doesn't give any emotion. I shared the emotion with the other stuff. Describing flogging. Does Mark describe the flogging? No, he's flogged. Does he describe the beatings? No, they beat him. Does he describe crucifixion? No, he says he was crucified. Where does Mark want to emphasize what happened on the cross? It's actually the end. He spends more time and more words about what happens starting verse 27 to the end. Let's read it. They crucified two rebels with him, one on his right, other on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads, saying, So, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. Insult to injury. Jesus is hanging there, and they're quoting his own words and saying, You obviously can't do anything about it. Verse 31. In the same way, the chief priests and teachers of the law mocked him, And amongst themselves, he saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Messiah, quote unquote, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. And then he gives a summary line. Those crucified with him also heaped up insults on him. And that's what we see finally is everyone insults him. Mark does not give us, Luke, if you read Luke, Luke tells us one of the guys, one of the thieves repents and cries out to Jesus for mercy, and he gets it. Mark doesn't tell us that in the story. According to Mark, now is one right, one wrong? No, no, no. Both authors, all the authors are looking at what happened, and they're telling us a particular story. What Mark wants us to know and wants us to remember is that in the end, before Jesus goes and dies, everyone is against him. Everyone's hurling insults. The chief priest, those passing by, the guys, on the, the guys being crucified with him, nobody's for him. And this is the interesting thing. Two things are going on. Jesus is dying and Jesus is who he says he is, but nobody gets it. So they insult him and they make fun of him and they make light of it. And let me just ask you, has anything actually changed today? Think about it. 2,000 years later, Let's, let's assume there are 7 billion people on the planet right now. How many people, in light of Jesus and his sacrifice for us, we're going to look next week at, at what happens and the meaning of Jesus dying and then rising again and, and what that implies and means for us. But for now, let's just look at the beatings. Let's just look at Jesus hanging there. 7 billion people on the planet, let's say. How many are following him full on? 
now, some religious experts who kind of do these surveys worldwide suggest, I don't know, that a billion or so would claim to be Christian around the world, right? Let's just use that as a broad number. Maybe it's right. How do you know? Let's assume that a billion, let's assume, let's even up it. Let's double it. Let's say two billion. Catholic, Protestant, Orthodox, followers of Jesus. Let's just say there's two billion. That would mean that there's still five billion that don't. Do you see the disparity? What Mark is saying is what's still happening today is that even though Jesus does what is promised beforehand, Psalm 22, Psalm 69, Isaiah 53, even though Jesus is this real Messiah, most people insult him and don't worship him for who he is, the rightful king. And Mark is hanging with his language, these pictures, Jesus a, a, a picture of a rightful king. A good king lays down his life for the people that he's ruling over. A, a good king is humble. A good king is just and right and fair. And, and a great king is Jesus. And he takes it, even though he doesn't deserve it, and yet most of the people are insulting and making fun of him and saying he's powerless. But we know on the other side, because we've chosen to follow him, that Jesus has all power. So with those two things in play, we see that the most important thing for Mark and the crucifixion is the, the mocking, the insults. And as a takeaway for us, let's just remember, those of us who follow him, uh, that, that the greatest insult is to see what Jesus has done and not be moved by it. And that's what everyone else did. Teachers of the law, people passing by, the others, they don't see the mystery. They don't see the wonder. They don't see the value. They take for granted what Jesus is doing. And for us, as Mark is writing to the church, he's saying, remember, remember, don't be like those who stood around and insulted or ignored the Savior of the world. But rather, because he's a king, honor him and worship him. So, so two takeaways. We're going to kind of cut this off here. We should do it in one, but we wanted to go slow. Next week, we're going to continue and see Jesus as he dies. What does Jesus say and do as he dies? What happens at the moment of his death? We'll get to that next week. But for now, two takeaways I think that are important for us to consider. The first is this. In light of Jesus' suffering, following Jesus doesn't mean that things are always going to go our way. That's kind of stating the obvious. and We kind of talked about this a bit. But Jesus is a king, right? But even as a rightful king, things do not go his way. Jesus should be worshipped, but he suffers. Jesus should be loved, but he's hated. He should be accepted, but he's ridiculed. And so as Jesus taught, a student is not above the teacher, nor is a novice above the master. If they hated me, says Jesus, they will hate you. Things in life do not always go according to our plan. And I think it would be helpful for us to remember that when we go through seasons of trial, maybe it's just temptation. That's like suffering. Maybe it's physical. We get a disease, an accident. Stuff happens that we weren't expecting. What we want to do is answer the why, right? God, why? Why did you let this happen? Why would you allow this? God, why am I going through? God, why are they? God, why? God, why? God, why? And Jesus, in the midst of all his pain, in the midst of all of his suffering, up until this point, there is that moment where he talks with the Father and brings up the why question. But in the midst of this, what we see is that Jesus suffers faithfully. 
There is a way to go through hard times and be faithful. And Jesus is not lashing out. He's not lashing out against the thieves. He's not lashing out against the chief priests. He's not lashing out against the Roman soldiers. Keep reading on. You see, he's going to forgive them. Jesus knows how to respond to severe suffering in a faithful way. And he is not only our Savior, yes, but Jesus on the cross is our model. When things don't go our way, and, and we should expect that, that it won't go our way all the time, uh, nowhere in the Christian promise is there a promise of an easy life. Nowhere. As a matter of fact, if you read the teachings of Jesus, you will find that Jesus often reminds his disciples that there is a hard road. There's a wide road that leads to destruction. There is a narrow road that leads to life. If anyone's going to follow me, they need to deny themselves. They need to take up their cross and follow me. He says to the rich man, if you want to follow me, that's great. Give away all of your wealth to the poor and come and follow me. There is this call that Jesus leads us to that does require seasons of blessing, of course, of joy, of course, of wonder and awe, knowing God, fine, Jesus is the best. But there is the window for pain and suffering. And so Jesus teaches us, even the way he lives, that following him means that things aren't always going to go our way. But what Jesus suffers is connected with his mission. Jesus came to seek and save the lost. So because Jesus knows what he's come to do, which is to bring us from death to life, Jesus is able to endure the most intense and horrific pain. And when you know that you're in God's hands, and when you know that you've given your life to Christ, and when you know that you're his child, and that you've been born anew, born again, and that he is your father, and you're his son, you're his daughter, and when you know that he really cares for you, and you know that he wants to make you more like his son Jesus, when those trials come, when those temptations come, when suffering comes, we can respond in a way that's faithful. I think the temptation for us as followers of Jesus is when I hit a stumbling block or things don't go my way, I begin to ask why. And isn't this the pull? Maybe it's just me, but I think I'm not alone. That when you're struggling or suffering, we pull away from the scriptures instead of to it. We pull away from times of fervent prayer instead of to it. We pull away from the community when we want to be left alone. And Jesus reminds us that there is a way to suffer and be faithful. Uh, the, the second thing I think uh, we see here is that your response to Jesus sets the tone for everything. The way that you and I respond to Jesus, it sets the tone for absolutely everything. Because at the end of it, verses 27 through, through 31, is just this litany, this list of people who don't respond well. They mock, they laugh, they make fun of, instead of of humbly coming to Jesus, they, they consider him a joke. And in the same way, your response to Jesus matters. And so this evening, you have the opportunity to respond in the rightful way because Jesus is a king and he's not just the crucified king. It's not just Jesus on the cross, but we know that Jesus does experience the resurrection. My response to Jesus tonight absolutely matters. And you say, Isaiah, I love Jesus, but I'm having a tough time. I want to throw up on the screen Hebrews 2. I love these verses, Hebrews 2, 14 and on. If you feel like you're struggling, if you feel like, man, I'm in a rough spot and I don't know what to do, consider Jesus. It says, since the children, that's us, have flesh and blood, 
Jesus too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. And so when you think about suffering, when you think about pain, when you think about what we're going through, just remember, your response to Jesus matters. What's the right response? Uh, the rightful response is not to man up or person or woman up, whatever, to be gender happy. It's not to say, like, I can tough it out or, or I can make it. It's not positive thinking or American stick to The right response in our pain, in our trouble, in our suffering is to cling onto Jesus for dear life. Because Jesus, in his death, defeated death itself. And the one who held the power over death, the devil, and Jesus in his suffering is able to take away the stranglehold of what you and I are going through. So now I have access to being faithful and the way to be faithful is to hold on to Jesus. It says in verse 16, for surely not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants or us. For this reason, he had to be made like them fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Because, and here's the key line, he himself suffered when he be, was tempted. He's able to help those who are being tempted. And that's my point tonight. If you feel like you're, you're, you're struggling, you're, you're overwhelmed, you can hold on to the one who suffered. You can hold on to the one who endured and you can know with confidence there is nothing that you and I have gone through. Now the details are different. Jesus wasn't married, so he didn't go through uh, marital troubles and relational challenges in that way. But he knows in every way, he knows what it's like for the closest people to reject him, his own disciples. Judas gives him a kiss on the cheek. Jesus knows what it's like to be rejected by your closest friend. And Jesus knows what it's like to be rejected by the people he came to rescue. Ever try to help someone out and they stick you with a knife in the back? Jesus understands. And Jesus, when he's tempted, is faithful. So now I can cling to Jesus and ask for his help and ask for his strength and receive his hope because he did go and suffer. Now I do not suffer alone. Does it mean that if you follow Jesus, he's going to take care of all your problems and you're never going to experience pain and it's human bliss? No, absolutely not. That's missing the point. It means when I suffer, when I struggle, when I am tempted, I am never alone. Jesus is there with me. And when I am faithless, he's faithful. And when I am weak, he is strong. And when I don't have wisdom, he is wisdom. Jesus has all that we need at all times for all things. And my friend, that's the good news. Mark writes, the beginning of the good news of Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. And now we see in full, because Jesus is faithful, I can live faithful as well. So tonight, my response matters. Where are you in this? Are you on the receiving end? Are you struggling now? Hold on to Jesus. Have you yet to find life and faith in him? Tonight, uh, we do once a month. Every week we celebrate the bread and the cup. But once a month, we offer the opportunity to be baptized. And in baptism, it's like what we see Jesus. Jesus dies. 
He suffers and then he rises again to life. And baptism is our identifying, our standing with Jesus. And by facing Jesus, as you went down and suffered and rose again to life, I identify, I stand with you. And tonight I want to be one of your followers. And maybe tonight the response for you is to be baptized. It's for those who choose to believe and follow the Lord Jesus. And the first thing that we do in the early church, read the book of Acts. We're going to study it next year. You see the first response of those who express express faith in Jesus is they go with him. Jesus was baptized and the disciples were baptized. And so all of his followers, the first step in discipleship to Jesus is to go in the water down. I am with Jesus in his death, his death for my life. And now as he is risen, I will rise too. And in the power of the Holy Spirit, I can live as a follower of Jesus.